coming up on this week's show, Marshall Thornton celebrates the anniversary of his Boys Town series as it turns 10. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 214 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Will from WillKanaus.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Mr. Jeff Adams. Hello, everybody. This episode of the show is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. A big thank you to Rob for recently joining us. We'll have more information on how you can join him and the rest of our super cool Patreon crew at the end of the show, along with a sneak peek of what we have coming up for you next week. It's been a wonderful, busy Wild and crazy ride here in the big gay fiction household. Um, But let's start with some recent media news. Yes, we were super excited to see that Eastsiders, which of course is one of our very favorite shows, is going to be back on Netflix with its fourth and final season starting on December 1st. Now, if you haven't caught up yet, it's the perfect time to binge the first three seasons on Netflix to get ready for this big finale. I'm so excited about this. I can't wait. Now, while we're waiting for that goodness, we also have watched a lot of stuff in this past week. Where would you like to start on our list of media things? Well, first off, the movie Last Christmas opened this past weekend, and it's been getting a lot of interesting buzz, uh, probably not for the correct reason. Um, (laughs) This particular movie features a twist at the end. Uh, And that has been, of course, leaked online, as things usually are. And people are having some very negative reactions to this. We went and saw Last Christmas on Saturday and absolutely loved it to pieces. The movie features Amelia Clark and Henry Goulding. Um, They're delightful and they're charming. And what struck me most about this particular movie is it has a very bitter, snarky British edge to it that I was certainly not expecting. I didn't really expect it either, you know, based on the ads, and yet it really worked for me. It didn't take away from the chemistry that Henry and Amelia had, and I love them so much. It just... mm. The movie is about Amelia, and her character is sort of, like, lost and drifting. Several times during the first half of the movie, uh, many characters make oblique reference to a recent illness... Once we discover what that illness is, we kind of finally understand her character's motivations and why she's essentially pretty much a colossal dick to everybody. (laughs) That sums it up pretty well, yes. (laughs) And uh, when she meets Henry's character, he sort of opens up her eyes to um, what the world has to offer and Christmas joy and all that sort of stuff. Now, some of the, I I don't even want to call it a controversy, um, concerning this particular twist is that... um, I think it's perfectly legitimate if you have read the spoilers about this movie and are not fond of this particular twist. Um, that's perfectly legitimate. Then this, you know, hey, this movie isn't for you. Um, we've seen the movie, and I believe that the twist works within the context of the story 
and I think it's really damn good. It's worth noting that Emma Thompson co-stars in this film as Emilia's mom, and she's wonderful and hilarious. Emma also co-wrote and co-produced this movie, uh, and she's super smart. She's not going to be putting out shit. This is <laughs> this is a good movie, you all. It really um, is. <laughs> I have to say, too, that beyond the central characters, uh, Michelle Yeoh also is in this film as the owner of a Christmas shop. She is uh, Amelia Clark's boss in this film. I've never seen her in a role quite like this because usually when she's on screen, she is some badass heroine. And in this, I mean, she's much more in the rom-com mode of character. She was a delight and her uh, essentially B-story romance also just captured my heart. So we really liked this movie. Uh, if you'd like a rom-com that's a little bit different or uh, a Christmas movie with a snarky edge, we recommend giving Last Christmas a try. Also, the George Michael soundtrack is utterly delightful. It's wonderful. Yes, I realize I don't have enough Wham! in my life. Wham! and George <laughs> Michael. So I think I might be picking up that soundtrack just to make sure I have some in my library. Exactly. Something else we checked out this past week. Um, ABC premiered the very first episode of the brand new show, High School Musical, The Musical, The Series. Now, this show is going to eventually be airing on Disney+, Plus, uh, the Disney streaming subscription service yes the disney plus service actually starts this week as a streaming service a la netflix or cbs all access this is one of the very first series that will be on the new service alongside hundreds of movies from disney and fox uh, as part of that acquisition that they made and uh, this one will actually premiere this week so it's no secret that we certainly enjoy musicals and we have enjoyed the high school musical series in the past and this show um, gives the, I guess, franchise a new, unique twist. It takes place in a fictional high school, the high school where they filmed the high school musical movies. (laughs) And if you can keep that straight, then I, yeah, you've done a better job than me. Anyway, um, the, the show is very meta and very funny, and it's about these sort of average, I'm using air quotes because they're all like banana talented, um, these average high school kids as they audition and try to get roles in High School Musical, the musical. Because the new drama teacher has come on staff and figured out that the school where the movies were filmed has never done the stage production of the movies. So she feels like that's her first thing that she must do. Anyway, the first episode was funny and delightful and meta, and I can't wait for the rest of the show. Yeah, I think we'll be picking up Disney Plus once the Simon series premieres, and then we can just binge a whole bunch of stuff at once. Speaking of musicals, last week, ABC premiered The Little Mermaid Live. This was an interesting twist on the live musicals that we've seen in the past, because this was not a full live musical. They interspersed the musical numbers with the actual animated film. So you'd be watching the animation and then they try to make a clever transition back to live action and you would see the production number happen live on stage and then they go back to the film. I thought it worked okay uh, to me. (laughs) Honestly, it reminded me of something like you see in the theme parks with like Fantasmic or the new the newer Star Wars mix of stage and film thing that they do at Hollywood Studios that happens outside multiple times a day. Uh, it was like they were trying to bring that into 
the televised space and so that they didn't have to figure out how to do the major like underwater scenes on live television. Yeah, overall it was a big meh for me because it wasn't one thing or the other. It was just sort of a kind of a it was a thing. It was a thing. I mean, I certainly give them points for not making another billion-dollar live-action movie. Like, we need another one of those. Uh, Why, well, yes, that was cynicism coming from Will. But um, <laughs> but uh, overall, it was like, eh. Yeah, it didn't really have me one way or the other. And it could have been, had they done this with one of the films that I like a lot in the Disney canon, I might have been more into it. But The Little Mermaid's never really been my thing. Uh, had it been like, I don't know, Beauty and the Beast or Aladdin, maybe I might have been interested. But yeah, I'll go with meh. <laughs> and real quickly to uh, wrap up this little media segment, we want to mention the new action series Treadstone that's airing on USA Network. And this is a really interesting, uh, as I mentioned, it's action-packed show. Um, it's about sleeper agents. In this case, they're called cicadas who are woken up with deadly results. And it's all about these sort of average, ordinary people who come to realize that they are deadly agents and how that affects their lives. And it's also about the CIA, and they're trying to find out who is waking them up and why and how it all ties to a North Korean plot to purchase a Cold War Russian nuclear missile called the Stiletto 6. It's all, it's it's a fascinating cast of characters and situations that are all kind of interwoven in a really interesting way. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. We binge watched the first four episodes recently. And the reason we're bringing this up is that one of the lead actors, Brian J. Smith, recently came out in an interview in Attitude Magazine. Um, you might recognize Brian from Sense8, the Netflix series. Uh, he was on that for a while, of course. And in Treadstone, he plays sort of like an average, everyday, working-class guy. He's got a job uh, on an oil rig in Alaska, and he gets fired. Uh, and he's, of course, an agent who gets woken up, and he botches this job in the Arctic. And when he returns home to Tennessee, um, that new violent life follows him, and he has to kind of deal with the aftermath of that. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, this actor has now come out. I had been recording this series and hadn't started it yet because I was intrigued by the commercials that I was seeing for it within Mr. Robot. And it was it takes place inside the world of Jason Bourne. So these agents are essentially the same thing that Jason Bourne is. And so I was intrigued by that and started watching it. And then you brought up this this guy who is in Sense8 and it's... It's a really good series. It has some interesting plot turns and how the the past of when these agents were created and the present uh, kind of all start to come together. And I've really enjoyed watching it. And uh, you could check it out on USA Network if you've missed it. It's also on USA On Demand. So now that we've talked about all the things that we've been watching, how about you tell us about all the things that you've been recently reading? Absolutely. I have got two books for us this week, and I'm going to kick off with a little Storm Chaser excitement. So when Erin McLean was with us on the show back in April, she mentioned she was working on a book about Storm Chasers, and I was totally excited by this because I'm a weather geek at heart, plus I love disaster movies, and of course, romance is always a good thing. Well, her natural disaster didn't disappoint. It checked so, so many boxes for me. 
Guthrie Gale is a human interest reporter at Oklahoma's KTTY. And can we just mention for a minute how great of a name that is for a storm reporter, Guthrie Gale? It's perfect. He's also the son of a famous storm chaser slash reality TV star who happens to be a real big jerk. Now, for a myriad of reasons, Guthrie wants to stay away from chasing deadly storms. Not only has he had close calls, but his ex is also part of his dad's team. However, when there's a shortage of chasers for the season, Guthrie is pressed into service and it's either be a team player or perhaps find himself without a job. Luke Masters is new to Oklahoma and wants to be a part of KTTY's chaser team. After a couple years of chasing in less active locations, he's looking for action in the coming season. He gets paired with Guthrie, and he's excited to be partnered with the experienced reporter, even as it becomes obvious that Guthrie wants nothing to do with the chase. What's undeniable from the outset is the chemistry Guthrie and Luke have. It throws both of them for a loop, but it also delights the TV audience as some of their introductory videos and interviews go viral to the point that they start getting shipped. While Guthrie tries to keep Luke at a distance, all the time that they spend in the chaser truck and some tense moments with storms give them a lot of time to get to know each other, both professionally and personally. That only adds to their chemistry and growing attraction. They end up agreeing that whatever might be blooming between them has to wait for the storm season to be over, since they don't want to mix work and pleasure, even though neither of them really wants to wait. But when a huge storm strikes, not only must Guthrie face his greatest fear, both men find out exactly how entangled they've become. Now, I love the mix of enemies to lovers and workplace tropes that are in play here. Guthrie tries so hard to make an enemy of Luke and push the guy away until he realizes he simply can't. The attraction is too strong with this guy. It's fun, too, how the TV station wants to capitalize on their early chemistry. Weathercasters and storm chasers are rock stars in the South, and I enjoyed this look at the TV station producing promo videos of these two as the storm chasing team. I also liked how this Oklahoma TV station had no issue with two other chasers being shipped, even in the middle of a red state. Luke and Guthrie sizzled as their attraction grew, and Guthrie's attempts to keep it tamped down were both cute and a little bit sad, to be honest, because he was willing to give up something so good in his life because of past baggage. Erin did her weather homework, and that made me so happy. I scarfed up weather books in both middle school and high school, and I've seen more than a few storm scenarios play out on TV when I lived in Alabama. The scenarios Guthrie and Luke went through rang true for me, and so did Aaron's description of the storms and what it would be like. While I've never been as close to a tornado as they are in the story, Aaron certainly got my heart thumping with her storm descriptions. Oh, and I mentioned Guthrie's dad. He is a complete dick. Uh, it's tragic seeing someone so self-absorbed that they can't love and support their family. I really wanted to see the guy get sucked up into a storm, but spoiler alert, I will say that that sadly did not happen. Now, this is the first book in Aaron's Storm Chaser series, and I can't wait to see what else she does with this. I like how she writes romance, and now I love how she writes storms. And I really, really want more of both. I recommend Natural Disaster for its great mix of sizzle between two hot guys in the midst of an adrenaline-fueled Oklahoma storm season. And we're now going to shift over to something completely different and talk about werewolves and witches. So TJ Klune's Green Creek series has taken a place among my very favorite all-time books. 
His ability to mix romance between very disparate people, the strong ties of family, both biological and found, along with an epic battle between good and evil, is beyond compelling. His latest heart song continues the highly emotional, amazing story with the focus this time on Robbie. Robbie, who came to Green Creek in Wolf Song to check up on the Bennett Werewolf Pack and never left. It's difficult to review this book and stay away from spoilers. At GRL, I spoke with Kurt Graves, the audiobook narrator, and he mentioned that when he was at the Clunatics meetup a couple weeks before GRL, he and TJ had figured out that they could only read about four pages at the event without giving up important details, and I completely understand why. So by way of plot, I'm only offering what can be gathered from the blurb. All Robbie Fontaine ever wanted was a place to belong. After the death of his mother, he bounces around from pack to pack, forming temporary bonds to keep from turning feral. It's enough until he receives a summons from the Wolf Stronghold in Caswell, Maine. Life is the trusted second to Michelle Hughes, the alpha of all, and the cherished friend of a gentle old witch teaches Robbie what it means to be pack, to have a home. But when a mission from Michelle sends Robbie into the field, he finds himself questioning where he belongs and everything he's been told. Whispers of traitorous wolves and wild magic abound, but who are the traitors and who are the betrayed? More than anything, Robbie hungers for answers because one of the alleged traitors is Kelly Bennett, the wolf who may be his mate. The truth has a way of coming out, and when it does, everything will shatter. Well, let's just say, folks, that that is an understatement as to what happens in this book. Once again, TJ has created a story that is very difficult to put down once started, and as with every Green Creek book, he's created a story full of twists, turns, and epic drama. Things are never easy for the Bennets and their allies, and yet, through it all, the power of family, and more precisely, pack, 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 rings true. Now, this book is all about Robbie, and where I liked him before, I'm a huge Robbie fan now. He's lost so much, and it's no wonder he took to the Bennett pack so fast back in Wolf Song. Hearing about his childhood directly from him gave me so many feels, and some of the work that he does with the children in Maine also speaks volumes on his overall character. And then there's his relationship with Kelly. They've got so much to work through. It's not easy being a mate to someone in the Bennett pack. And TJ's infused Robbie and Kelly with so much warmth and love, longing and desire. It's really everything a romance reader could want. But boy, do they have obstacles, both personal ones and ones created by the big bad evil of this series. A couple additional characters I've got to give shout out to from this installment. Elizabeth Bennett, the matriarch of the Bennett pack, has been through so much across the series. And yet she remains strong, fierce, and formidable. If she's your friend or family, she's there for you no matter what and would move heaven and earth for you. But if you cross her, watch out. She makes an important call in the second half of this book and you see exactly what this wolf mother is all about. Then there's Rico. He lives in Green Creek and has seen all the crazy wild stuff that's gone down since he was a kid. This guy's badass. In this book in particular, he delivers perfect commentary, a mix of well-placed comic relief but also telling people when they're making possibly the worst decisions. While the book is Robbie's story, Rico has a tremendous story arc, and I love seeing him get his due here. The tension level TJ builds in this book stressed me out in the best way possible. He's put the Bennett pack through so much already, and after the battles and heart song, I can't imagine what's coming in Brother Song next year, and I know I can't wait for it. 
You can't talk about the Green Creek series without also mentioning Kurt Graves. He's been the voice of the series since the beginning, and as I've said before, I can't imagine a Green Creek story without him. The emotional punch his narration packs is perfect, and especially this time out with Robbie and Kelly and all they go through. Yes, I cried more than once as he read to me. If you haven't started the Green Creek series, you should give Wolfsong a try. These should not be read out of order. And if you're already into the series, you should read or even better listen to Heart Song, as you will not regret it. If you're interested in learning more about the books or anything else that we've talked about on the show this week, all you have to do is go to the show notes page for episode 214 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. Hi, I'm Jay from the LGBTQ romance review blog, Joyfully Jay. At Joyfully Jay, we review tons of LGBTQ romance, as well as romantic fiction and nonfiction. We review ebooks, audiobooks, and even the occasional movie. We typically review about 18 books a week, so Joyfully Jay is a great place to hear about new releases, catch up on books you may have missed, and find some new favorites. In addition to our reviews, each weekday we host an author as our first post of the day. This gives readers a chance to learn more about new releases, get exclusive excerpts, find out about the author, and participate in great giveaways. Each author post on Joyfully J is exclusive, so you get access to book and author information you can't find other places. At Joyfully J, we love LGBTQ romance and are excited to share it with you. Stop by the blog at joyfullyj.com. You can also visit us on our Facebook group, The Joyful Jays. We'd love to have you join us. So this week, we get to welcome back to the podcast, Marshall Thornton. He's hit a milestone with his Boys Town series as it turns 10 this month. We've got all the details here on how he created the series, along with some information about his other books, like his Pink's Video Mysteries. Uh, and it's been so exciting to talk to him about that. Welcome back to the podcast, Marshall. It's so great to have you here again. Thanks for having me. And in particular, it's awesome to be celebrating this because this November is the 10th anniversary of the Boys Town series, which is 12 books and it's won a Lambda Literary Award and it's been a finalist five other times, which is incredible. Congratulations, first of all. Thank you. Thank you very much. And for those who haven't explored this series, tell us what this is about. Okay. Well, it's a mystery series. It takes place in Chicago uh, it spans from 1981 to 1985. It follows a guy named Nick Nowak, who is a former CPD officer um, and now private eye. And it tracks his cases and his relationships with his friends and lovers and all that stuff. And how are you celebrating this decade milestone? Well, the big thing that I want everyone to know is I'm reducing the price on all the ebooks to $3.99 for the entire month. Oh, so, that's so awesome. I'm, that's like a two for one, I think, in most cases. Yeah, it's usually six ninety nine. So um, it's a chance to get in and, and buy them if you like them and start if you haven't tried them before. So that's, that's the big awesome. thing. Everybody should go out and get them right now. <laughs> and of course, I'm doing things like this <laughs> to celebrate as well. So, Which is also good. It's so nice to celebrate these kind of milestones in gay fiction. What was the inspiration for the series back when you began? Well, <laughs> I'm going to go way back. It's kind of funny. Once in the 90s, I did my natal chart. And, and I'm not normally this like 
touchy-feely, but um, it said I was going to be a mystery writer, which I thought was very odd because I wasn't really that interested. And like about 10 years later, maybe 15, I was writing screenplays. I've been writing them for about 10 years and, um, and spec scripts and not, not really kind of, you know, getting some bites here and there, but not really making a living or anything. And, and the thing I realized about screenplays is that they're not finished until they're a movie. So basically <laughs> 10 years, I didn't finish anything. And that part of it actually got more frustrating than not making any money. And so I started looking around and, and found a little publisher that wanted gay erotica for Christmas. And that was a very new concept to me. And so I thought, I have to try this. And so I wrote the one short story um, for Torqueer and, and then was fishing around looking for something else to do. And I thought, well, I could, could actually do a mystery and um, had loved, you know, Sue Grafton and people like that and thought, okay, yeah. And, and I also was very familiar with um, Joseph Hansen's work. And I thought, okay, I can do this. And originally I was doing, I thought of it as a short story series, which is why the first several books are short story collections. But what happened was I wrote the first two and the publisher said, okay, well, we can publish them way down the road because they had a glut of short stories. And I was like, okay, that's a really long time. And they said, you know, if you put them together in one book, we can do it faster. So I did that. And that's how they became books. And then gradually I moved to the novel format. So that's the evolution of how I got started with it, I guess. Where did the idea for the overall story of Boys Town come from? Golly. It just sort of evolved piece by piece. I mean, I've certainly, I've always been playing with elements of masculinity and how some guys, you know, I mean, in some respects, Nick is like this James Bond, Raymond Chandler kind of character, except for being gay uh, at the beginning of the series. And he does kind of change as it goes along. And so I was just sort of playing with those things. And the story kind of evolved piece by piece in ways that I wasn't really expecting. Like the very first story I wrote, um, which was called Little Boy Found, He's hired to find this kid, this little twink, um, whose name is Brian. And that character, he's still in the books. <laughs> I'm still writing about Brian Pearson um, all these books later. And uh, when I first you know, introduced him, I had no idea that I was going to be doing that, um, that I would be keeping him. And the characters have basically popped up along the way and introduced themselves and decided to stay. <laughs> so, and and some, some of that actually comes from just logic. You know, it's like if you're a small-time PI in Chicago in the 80s, you're going to go to people who know things that you already know. You know you're not going to dig out complete strangers. You're going to go, okay, I'm going to talk to this person and that person. And that's how a lot of the characters evolved. It's like they were needed for the stories. Mm-hmm. You root a lot of your work in the 80s. Mm -hmm. What is it about that decade in time that draws you in that way? Well, um, I lived in Chicago from 1980 to 1986, 87. And so 
there is an ease and familiarity. You know, they say, write what you know. And of course, you know, in my spare time, I'm a private detective. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I'm not. And so, you know, what you want to do actually as a writer is you mix things you know and things you don't. So I know Chicago well from that period. Um, So that part of it was actually very easy. And a lot of the places that Nick lives and goes, you know, they're my old apartments or apartments of friends of mine or places I worked and things that I did. And and so I was able to kind of just throw all of that in, which made it very easy. Um, And certainly, you know, it is a very important period. I mean, and typically people look at it as being important because of AIDS, but I think it was important for a lot of reasons beyond that. It's been very interesting writing about the early days of AIDS and what people were saying, you know, and kind of capturing that story, like a worm's eye view of it, you know, because typically it's kind of, um, it's the focus of the story. And this is actually just something that's happening to everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're hearing things and people are getting sick and people die, but you know, it's like, and, and people start to survive and start to do things to fight back. And, and these are just people's lives rather than being a story about that. So that's been interesting. As I've gone along, I just realized how much the world changed from 1981 to 1985. You know, it starts with Ronald Reagan's inauguration. It's in the first story. And the world just gets a little meaner and meaner every day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, what started us on this journey to where we are now. Uh, so, um, although it's interesting, you know, to write about dynasty and to write about the big puffy dresses everyone was wearing and how everybody was like, which is better now? And, and kind of like came out of the closet and was like, yes, we won't pretend we give a shit about anybody. <laughs> <laughs> How much have you learned along the way looking at that side of things that you, you know, write what you know, but as you said, you're not a PI. How much have you learned over the years of the PI game to write the series? Um, I'm always very, you know, aware of it and have researched things. And certainly, you know, one of the things that Nick says a lot in the first few books is <laughs> the job is a lot of paperwork and it's very boring until it's not. And he actually does a lot. I'm really surprised sometimes that I got away with this, but he does a lot of paperwork. And a lot of the stories that I'm writing about him doing paperwork, you know, he's actually searching through files. He goes a lot to the, to the main library in Chicago and goes down in the feast room and is reading newspaper articles. And um, I'm surprised people find that as interesting as they do. Um, but that's really what it is. You know, it's like, it's a lot of digging in paper, um, until somebody tries to shoot you. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great quote just on its own right there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's, I mean, he's, he says things. I think one of the lines I wrote was like, you know, it's a really boring job and, and interspersed with moments that no one should ever have to deal with. <laughs> Having gone from your chart that said you were going to be a mystery writer to where yes. you are now, were you even interested in mystery at all as like a genre that you read or watched on TV or something? Or 
Where do you um, think that mystery thing kind of started wrapping itself in? I think, you know, I have very clear memories of picking up the Brandstetter series by Joseph Hansen in the, uh, the mid-80s, the late 80s. I started reading those, and those were just really interesting. And it's one of the few series that I grabbed onto and read everything I could get my hands on. I mean, certainly as a kid, you know, we watched Magnum P.I. and Perry Mason and all of those shows. So, I mean, I had about as much familiarity as everybody else in the world. Uh, but I really didn't start digging into mystery writers until the 80s. Um, and I, I've always been a big Sue Grafton fan as well. Uh, I love the way that she includes all the minutiae of her characters' lives. You know, it's like you know... You know, Kinsey Mulholland likes particular kinds of peanut butter and pickled sandwiches, and she wears this kind of dress, and, you know, she runs every morning. And, and those things are actually very important, and I think what I took from that was that it's a great opportunity to write about how we lived then and to capture very real details um, about our lives that, it's hard to capture them on their own for people without a genre story to hang them on. Mm -hmm. Did you plan for the series to go as long as it has with 12 books? No, no. I just kept writing them. And, you know, this, this, the 12 books have several distinct arcs that cover different um, books and kind of come to an end. And then another one starts. And I just kind of felt this was the right time to stop. So I'm actually writing the last book. They speak. Okay. And that'll be number 13. Um, number 13. Um, I'm calling it fade out, which is two words. And so it's a nod to my past as a screenwriter, but it's also a nod to um, Joseph Hansen's first brand center book, which was also called fade out one word. <laughs> Okay. I like all the, the multiple meanings there. That's very cool. Yes. And so he's sort of reaching the end of Chicago. Are you going to move forward into 1986 in this last book or stay in 85? It stays in 1985. And un, unlike most of the other books, it starts immediately after the previous book. Usually it's a gap, but um, for various reasons, uh, things that I set up in the last book have to be paid off immediately does it have a release date yet uh, when people can expect it to come out it'll be sometime in january uh, it'll probably take me another oh gosh two or three weeks to finish it and then it goes to my editor and we go back and forth and then it goes to the proofreaders so yeah it's about another three months is there anything you and can kind of tease us about what's going to happen in the in the big finale uh-uh <laughs> it is actually going <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, I said that it kind of it brings up an interesting point, actually. I mean, one of the joys of writing this series pretty much on my own, I, I worked with um, two publishers on it, but they didn't really give me a lot of direction. And I've done um, everything since book seven on my own. And I, I, the interesting thing about writing a mystery series is if you're working with a big publisher, they're going to want you to write the same book over and over and over again. You know, because that's what the audience wants. And that's actually 
you know, and it's not that I don't do that. It's just that I've had a lot more freedom to, you know, end one story I can, I have ended in, you know, a room full of people and, and you did it. And then other ones I've actually ended violently. And then others, you know, he just, I've like looked for different ways to end the books. I've looked for different ways to raise the stakes in the middle. Because I've had more freedom to play with the genre that I think most you know mystery writers have when they work with a big publisher. And so the last book is going to be kind of action packed, you know, which I don't always do. So it's going to be I'm trying to go out on a big note. <laughs> As it should after so many books. You should go out with that bang, right? Yes. And maybe even a literal bang since it's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not having as much sex as he had in the early books. There were lots of bangs then. <laughs> it's hard to ask this of authors because it's always like picking your children. But do you have a favorite installment of the series? Actually, that's an easy answer. <laughs> My favorite is um, Boys Town Four: A Time for Secrets. It's the first of the full. It's the first full-length book that I wrote in the series, and I really like it because you know history is an important element of the books, and in that book he does a case for this guy who wants to find somebody he knew in the fifties, and then during the course of everything he finds this guy's journal. So he's reading these journal entries that go back to the 50s. So it's telling a contemporary story about what happens when he looks for the, the guy this, that he wants to find. And then you get the backstory of what was going on with them early on. You know, but the, the two stories and the two time periods kind of interconnect. And so that was really, I think, fun and interesting. And one of the things I enjoy about the series always is just looking up the history and writing down what happened and how we've evolved. And so that's why that's my favorite. <laughs> nice. Has it been difficult writing a series rooted in the eighties and making sure you don't introduce something that's too modern in it? Cause I mean, just in terms of how crimes get solved and like what's available you had him going down, you know, into the library to look at the microfiche, which I thought was awesome because I have great memories of looking at microfiche as a kid, right? Doing term papers and stuff. But do you have to think about a lot of like what he could and could not do in like 1980, whatever? Well, yes. I mean, I do have to check up on things. And, and, and in certain respects, it's, it's easier because I'm not running a procedural. So I don't have to think about how the police behaved in the 80s, although he interacts with them frequently. And I have actually tried to, you know, incorporate what I know about the CPD from that period. So there's elements of that. And it's just, a, it's a lot of research um, and things that, you know, just once you know them, you just never forget them. You know, <laughs> it's like hair evidence was really relied on for a long time. And then they went, oh, this is bogus. And they didn't bring back hair evidence until DNA. And DNA is important in the 90s. About the mid-90s, DNA starts to become important. So he's doing things without DNA. And, and, and you know, he would not have access to that um, as a private eye. So 
I do have to pay attention. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All part of the fun of the research. Yes. And unfortunately, you know, I remember so much of what I'm writing about. Right. It was like, I mean, I have to, I mean, I have to check myself. <laughs> I remember 80s, okay, Madonna. And then it's like, oh, well, that, oh, that song's later. This one goes there. Okay, so there, I mean, I have to check everything as I go along. I mean, I'm, I'm a big research on the fly kind of person. You know, it's like I don't research before I write the book. I start writing the book, and it's like, I think I need to know this. <laughs> Find out what it is, so. At least you get to go to Google and not to the library for the microfiche. <laughs> Oh, yes. Actually, yes. I joke with my friends that um, my superhero name is the Mad Googler. <laughs> I would love to see the costume that goes with that. You should dress up like that for Halloween one year. <laughs> yeah, I'll have to give that one some thought. <laughs> <laughs> what that would look like. Yes. Hmm. Are you going to miss this when you don't have another one to write? Um. Well, I do have another series that I write, uh, Pink's Video Mysteries. And I'm starting a new series in the spring. Um, and uh, probably we'll start another series after that. And, you know, if I miss him a lot, I'll figure out something. <laughs> never say never. Yes. I mean, the Boys Town series is ending, period. Maybe we'll see something with Nick later on. I don't know. Okay. Let's talk about your most recent book outside of Boys Town. Codename Liberty came out earlier this year. Another book set in the 80s, uh, right around the Iran hostage crisis and Jimmy Carter transitioning over to Ronald Reagan. This book sounds very different from other stuff that you've written. What is this book about and kind of what inspired you to write specifically about this bit of our history? The book is about this, um, this kid, really. He's 20 years old. He's working in one of the high-end restaurants in Washington, D.C., and goes to a club opening up um, in the Fruit Loop and meets a prince um, who is a member of the Iranian royal family prior to the Shah that we're all familiar with. The, his, the Shah's family ousted these people. And so they're there, he and his father are in Washington trying to help out and help with the negotiations. And the kid is approached by a CIA agent who tells him that, that they are actually there to prevent the hostages from getting out and that the CIA wants to keep an eye on them. And so that's how the story starts. I wanted to write something about that period for a long time. Jimmy Carter has grown in my estimation <laughs> very much since I was a kid. Uh, I think there was a, the, the country turned against him, and I a much better president than we give him credit for, um, and tried incredibly hard to get these people out. <clears throat> I mean, he didn't have Twitter, so he couldn't just whine. Um, <laughs> And in many respects, I think he's probably the, the best human being we've had in the office in my lifetime. So it's, it's I thought it was very important to write about. And also, I mean, I've been I've been thinking about writing something 
in that period for seven or eight years. And um, it just seemed the right time because to me, the hostage taking actually ended up becoming a, a foreign interference in our election. Because yeah. had they mm -hmm. let them go, Carter would have won a second term because he was not in bad shape until that they deliberately refused to let them go until right after Reagan's inauguration. I mean, they wouldn't even give him the satisfaction of letting them go after he lost. Right. Which is terrible. Um, and they gave us Ronald Reagan, <laughs> who gave them arms. And somehow that's not a problem. <laughs> But I mean, the story itself is actually, I mean, this, that's just the background of the story. Um, I'm making it sound very political. It's actually a romantic thriller. And, you know, he's kind of caught, the kid is kind of caught between the CIA agent and this prince. And, and in many respects, it's all very glamorous, but, you know, it's also kind of scary and, and there's lots of tension and a few murders and things like that. So from... PIs in the 80s to CIA in the 80s. That's a mm -hmm. big pivot in, in knowing what to put in the story. Yeah, but it's all, it's, you know, I'm, I'm a big first person writer, so it's all told from this kid's point of view. And so it's really all what he's seeing, you know, so it's not, you know, like I, I wasn't going into Langley with the, with the CIA agent. Okay. Um, and figuring out what that was like. So, um, and I, I really enjoy writing first person because it does really limit those things and you have to figure out how to tell the story without bouncing all over the place. Although in, in this book, I do actually include um, what I call these little docu-drama sections, you know, where there's like telexes about what's going on with the hostages and White House memos and... Um, I made up an entry for Jimmy Carter's diary and things like that to keep the the real political thing isolated to those entries. So you always had a context for what was going on. What's coming up next? You hinted at some new series starting and what you're looking at into 2020. Tell us a little bit more. Well, it's going to be the last Boys Town book in January. And then I'm planning another um, Pink's video mystery. I think they're going to go to Vegas, which should be really fun. And then um, I'm working on a, a, a rural mystery that takes place in um, northern lower Michigan, which is where I'm living now. So, um, and that actually, I'm, the Pink's books take place in the 90s, and then the, the new series is going to take place in the aughts. So I'm slowly moving forward. <laughs> Cool. So what's the best way for everyone to keep up with you online so they can keep track of all these projects coming in 2020? You know, I spend a lot of time on Facebook. I do have a website, but I don't go there very often. I've got a fan group on Facebook, and if people join, I will give them an audiobook free. Um, so they sh it shouldn't be hard to find that. I think it's just author Marshall Thornton. And if you have any trouble, then just... Hit me up on Facebook and I'll get you there. Yeah, and we'll put it in the show notes so people can find it too. Perfect. Well, Marshall, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about the Boys 10 anniversary. Congratulations again. And certainly everyone should go out and pick up those books while they're on sale this month. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. 
This week's interview transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And thanks again to Marshall for joining us. It was so great to talk to him about this milestone the Boys Town series has gone through. Just a quick reminder, guys, before we go, you can help support the Big Gay Fiction Podcast with a monthly pledge through Patreon. The additional support of our superfans helps pay for the cost of producing and distributing this show. Joining is easy, and you'll get special monthly bonus episodes, early access to author interviews, and the Patreon-exclusive show Big Gay Fiction After Dark. For a complete list of all the perks that come with being a Patreon community member, simply head on over to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. Now, coming up in episode 215, we have a really special episode where I sit down with authors Nora Phoenix, Sylvia Violet, Victoria Sue and Susie Hawk, and we're going to be talking about Impreg. I sat in on this interview that we recorded at GRL. I had the best time learning about this genre that I really don't know a lot about, so I think you guys are in for some great stuff next week. And just one last reminder as we wrap up, Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more podcasts that you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next time, everyone, please keep turning those pages and keep reading. For detailed show notes and links to everything discussed in this episode, go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com. New episodes are available every Monday at all major podcast distributors. You can also find us on YouTube. I'm Derek McLean. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.